Hey everybody, Josh Sheridan here with the Barely Legal Podcast. I'm excited for today's show. We have Helene Daniel, who's running for Group 30 in Hillsborough County for the Circuit Court Bench. Uh, she is in a race with two other opponents, Gary Dolgen and Danny Alvarez. Danny's been on the show before, uh, but we're lucky to have Helene uh, come in and talk to us a little bit about her story, her career, uh, her thoughts about uh, the bench and what she'll bring to it and whatever else we might stumble upon. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Josh, for having me. All right. I know we've been trying to schedule this one for a while, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the, the, the bullet for that one because, uh, you know, it was hard for your assistant to, to nail me down on times, but I'm glad that we finally got you in. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. All right. So I have always known you kind of peripherally. I haven't had the uh, good fortune to work with you on any cases, but everyone that I know that knows you speaks well of you and so it wanted to learn a little bit about kind of your history were you born in florida no i was born in paris france paris france that's amazing and how long did you live over there uh up until 12 and a half oh wow so your formative years were spent over there yes how yes. was that it was wonderful i mean it was the only thing i knew we did travel my parents and i um and my family my was it sisters a big, family or? big family i have three sisters i'm still blessed to have all three of of them in That's my great. life and mom. Mom is 90 years old. Oh my gosh. And uh, she is uh, truly the matriarch of the family. Uh, but we were a very tight knit family. And uh, unfortunately, due to uncontrollable circumstances called life, yeah. uh, my parents divorced. And that was a pretty traumatic time for us. And my mother, who used to vacation in West Palm Beach in the 50s and early 60s, uh, my aunt and uncle lived there, um, decided it would be a wonderful thing to start a new life in West Palm Beach. So, What year would that have been? I'm not so going to ask I you how think, old you are, but I'm asking you what year that would have been. I'm almost certain it's 1973 is when we came over. Oh, okay. So I was not yet 13. Right. And it may have seemed like a great idea to my mom to start a new life in West Palm Beach. I mean, who doesn't want to live in Florida? But from my point of view, it was very difficult. I didn't understand exactly what was happening. Uh, but I trusted my sisters, and my sisters were completely on board. And, of course, in time, I have come to appreciate the sacrifice that my mother and my sisters have uh, made for me. I was the youngest. Well, I, I was just going to ask you where, you, where you were the in the youngest. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm still the youngest. <laughs> I guess you say that all the time. Uh -huh. But um, yes, they were uh, strongly standing by my mom and for good reasons that I did not understand. What but was, I, what's the age difference? How, how, what are the, so my, how much older are your sisters oh, than you? You don't I have love, to give me the ages. No, but. I love talking about okay. my sisters. Yeah. I love them. Yeah. Uh, Nella is my oldest, number one. Okay. Uh, she uh, just turned 70. What does she do? She's retired Sorry, now. What, what did she do? Uh, she used to be a business owner and also worked in the school system what in West Palm Beach. Oh, my goodness. Um, Sorry. Uh, just like a consignment oh, okay, store, sure, retail yeah. type yeah, of thing. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, but she also worked in the school system in West Palm Beach, okay. where we've spent a whole lot of years there. And uh, so Nella's number one. She just turned 70. Sorry, kid. And uh. then Maria's number two. 
and she is a real estate commercial broker in Lakeland. She's, oh, wow. She's, had her, she's done phenomenally well. well. The interest rates are really good right now, so I'll be interested to see how that goes. <laughs> Look her up. Yeah. Uh, she's done very well for herself, and, uh, um, and she, too, stood very strongly by my mom at, during those times, and they were the two oldest and closest in age sure. as well. And then I have Françoise, my number three sister. Francois, I know. Francoise with. <laughs> Anglicizing it, but French, okay. And yeah, as French as you can get. Yeah. Uh, Françoise um, was in high school, or the French high school equivalent, equivalent yeah. when she came to, or when we came to America. And so that was also very difficult Tough for her, for, her I'm sure, yeah. for different reasons. And then uh, Françoise and I are four years apart, okay. and then I'm number four. Okay. And we do go by numbers, and when we call each other, one, you know, we, two, yes, we do. Now, I'm trying to think, my my history is, is weak, but West Palm's pretty close to Miami. When was the, uh, was it the Ariel Boatload? What's the, the name of that, when uh, everybody emigrated from Cuba yes. to South Florida? Was that? In the 80s, early oh, so 80s. So it was a little bit, so you had been here for a little bit. A little bit. Do you remember that at all when you were down there? I remember that... reading about it. Okay, but it didn't affect you or anything that you kind of noticed? Not really. Okay. West Palm Beach. Okay, so it's still part of the Tri-County area, as sure. they call it now, the Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm right. Beach counties. But uh, it's a different world, practically to, speaking. Back then it was. West Palm Beach was very much uh, uh, a small town, very similar to what Tampa was like 10, 20 years ago. Very small town feel. Right. But not just... Um, geographically it was also it felt small it's right. huge now it totally different has changed but at the time when we came to west palm beach uh we have this word in french and now that i know you speak french oh, <laughs> dépaysement and dépaysement i'm not sure exactly how to translate it but i would have to say it is a complete change in environment sure and i of the four of us well the five of us I had the hardest time adjusting physically, uh, the heat, the humidity, the food. I was sick all the time, and I, I was pretty miserable. Plus, I didn't know the language, too. Well, I, I can only imagine. <laughs> well, you know, uh, politically speaking, immigration is a very hot hot topic now. You know, we're, we're dealing with uh, conflicting views on what our nation should be as far as you know, accepting people, and then obviously, if you throw the coronavirus on top of it, it's getting to the point. Where I I don't know what what's happening, but I, I was going to ask you your, your experience as someone from France here, growing up in the '70s, but you pretty much talked on it. But do you feel that that kind of colored who you are as an attorney? I, I know I'm kind of skipping ahead, but kind of giving you a, a different perspective on what people might experience uh, of the law who, who aren't used to the law here or grow, growing up in the States? Yes, I, I think in short, to to address it in a sh your, your These question These are kind of jazz sessions, yes, so we're going to be all it. over the map. We're going to go forward, backwards, sideways. Yes. So my mom, my mom, especially my mom, uh, I would observe a great deal of the discrimination she endured uh, because she did not know the language, and so they wouldn't pay her as much as her American a counterpart. Lesser than type yes. of person. Um, and even though we were papered immigrants, we were kind of lumped in always as, you know, the immigrants. Well, that's still kind of a problem. <laughs> it isn't. Yes, it is seemingly that yeah. has not changed, sadly. Uh, so by virtue of the fact that we were new, didn't know the language, uh, we were all women fending for ourselves. It was very difficult. And so I saw a great deal of discrimination in that fashion. And that really did make me stronger. And my mom 
has been probably the strongest advocate for us to get an education. And it really is the great equalizer. And she believed we could do anything, everything, uh, but as long as we had that education, nothing could stop us. So Francoise ended up uh, getting uh, not just a college degree, but she also got a master's degree in education. Oh, wow. And she was a teacher uh, for many years. Uh, and then, of course, as you know, I finished uh, high school in West Palm Beach, went to Stetson undergrad. I studied one year in Germany. Was uh, it a study abroad or how did, was it a LLM or what was the... It was a study abroad okay. uh, program out of Stetson. It was actually my entire senior Stetson year. Stetson Deland? Correct. Okay. Yes, undergrad. Go Hatters. Uh. Uh, my entire senior year was in Germany. Oh, wow. And my, my undergrad degree was foreign languages. So they ran out of classes for me by my junior year and so sent me off to Germany. I begged them to send me to France, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't well, let me. Yeah, that would have been a nice. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it would have been a nice vacation. I have all sorts of places to <laughs> stay, and yeah. So yeah. was that your first time to Germany? It was. And so you're what? Uh, you're a 21 year old in Germany. Yes, that's right. Very how, good. How I turned 21 there. How yes. was 21 years old in Germany? Loved it. I loved it. We were in an international dorm, uh, exposed to a whole lot of different. Uh, the Berlin cultures. Wall, or wait, wait, that, that came down. It came down after I went back to America. Okay. Uh, but all of this to say, in and I apologize, a very disjointed way, but that all of the traveling that I've done and my experiences as a young girl coming to America, learning the language, the difficulties we've experienced, has given me really a sensitivity to people. And, and I know that we're not all lucky or blessed to have the education that you and I have, Josh. And by virtue of that privilege, because it really is a privilege, we have to do more than just what we do. We have to not only help others, but we also have to have a sensitivity to people. And when they walk in a courtroom, particularly those who are not represented by counsel, yes, I have an affinity for them. Mm -hmm. We have to do more for them. Right. And so I see people as people, and I don't see people as case numbers. And I think that is really important. And that's one of the reasons I want to serve on the bench, because it is really service. It's not a glam job. I have a lot of friends who are judges, and they work so hard, and they are humble and modest and really understand the weight that a black robe carries. And it's a genuine, sincere sentiment on their part, and I see it. They're prepared. They go to court having read what's coming. They, are, they know what docket they have. All of these things are the foundation of what makes a good judge. I'm skipping ahead now. Yeah, I love it. It's, we're water. We're going yeah. wherever it takes us. It's fine. <laughs> but it's, it's more than being prepared, of course, being on time, all these things that, you know, is hit or miss with all of us. But, but, but it is an endeavor that we try. We practice. We try to do it every day consistently. But it's more than that. Being a good judge really is also seeing for people, I mean, seeing people for what they are and trying to have an understanding of why they're coming to court, not just looking at their file and say, oh, yeah, okay, repeat offender. Hmm. Well, I know I love everything you're saying, and it's funny because this is all what I kind of historically have touched on towards the end of interviews with some of the other judicial nominees, but one of the questions that I've asked everybody that's come on is, what, what do you find to be uh, the most important or one of the most important um, characteristics of a good judge and I, my answer that I kind of wait for is temperament and 
that's pretty much where everybody comes down. But I, I, I kind of like the way that you're saying it, because the experience of the legal system, just like the experience of this country to an immigrant, uh, the experience of the legal system in the courthouse, especially for those who are unrepresented, or it's their first time there, it's just you set the tone for everything, you know, you set the tone for how the case is going to go, how the people are going to behave in your courtroom, the trajectory of the case. And, you know, you, you've got your, you've, you kind of set the tone as the judge. And, you know, with a lot of the stuff that we deal in, whether it's divorce, whether it's criminal cases, you know, even with personal injury or wrongful death cases, we're dealing with big, big chips on the table. And, you know, it, it's not going to be, ideal for anybody to be there, but you can definitely control how that experience goes. And I think that's so important. Just graciousness. I think yes. today we've lost that. And dignity. Treating, treating people treating with dignity. Treating people with dignity. You know, so many, I've met so many amazing people. I've had people on this show. I had a great uh, guest on not too long ago. He's in a, he's in a band. He, uh, he's a vegan. He's raising a daughter. He, uh, he uh, was a, he does marble countertops and stuff. He, he was a bank robber. He had done prison time. And he has turned himself around and just a beautiful, artistic human being who had a spot in his life that got away from him. But he's he's just recovered beautifully. And, uh, you know, I, I just think if somehow we could change direction back to graciousness and dignity and treating people with compassion. respect. Compassion. Someone said, you know, you know, politically, we spend so much time focusing on how we're different. But... We have far more in common with people than what we don't have in common with people. I agree. And if we can always kind of have that as a touchstone when interacting with people, I just think that permeates the whole system and can kind of change it around a little bit. And they have some pretty far-reaching impacts. So, you know, we, we touched on it earlier with our conversation today than we do, and that's fine. But I think the temperament of a judge, you know, is important for that reason would you agree absolutely it's it's treating people with compassion even though everybody knows there's going to be a ruling in the courtroom uh it's treating them with respect and dignity and ensuring they understand what's being said and not everybody speaks up sometimes and says i need an interpreter right so just think how many people who are already disenfranchised not represented by counsel and don't have an interpreter with them or maybe it's someone from the family who's so so okay on english and they miss out so much on what is appropriately uh being conveyed to them communicated to them and the significance of what they may be giving up right so yeah in that regard i have to say i have a certain sensitivity to it uh and, and you, 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 you know, you, we, we talked about education and, and how important I feel is it is to have an education. But I really firmly believe that all of us, as part of our education, should study abor- abroad. Travel, 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 travel. Oh, my gosh. Study abroad. The, the one year I spent in Germany, I was in an international dorm. So uh, it was an eye-opener for me, first of all, to be in a co-ed dorm, right. for starters. So it's more like a big apartment building, but instead of, you know, plush apartments, it's one room with a sink right. and a window. Right. And a, little, like a tiny, hostel, yeah, right. it was, yes, a, a little bit of a closet. It, but it was fun. It was ours. We didn't share. They were, there were no roommates. And then we shared the showers, the bathrooms down the hall, and then a big kitchen. And every floor had the same setup. So that part was fun, but it was all men, women. And we were all from different parts of the world, and it was incredible 
sharing different experiences with them. And there was a, a, a group of men I will never forget who were all uh, exiles from Iran. Oh, wow. So the Shah had just been ousted and the um, uh, uh, Khomeini had come into power and they were the sons of prominent uh, families who did not support Khomeini at the time. And so they had to be exiled because they were basically marked to be executed sure. if they went back to Iran. So at that point, again, we experienced, my friends and I, my, my other uh, colleagues from uh, Stetson, there was just a very small group of us, experienced the difficulty and the challenges that other kids our age Right. Are experiencing from different parts of the world. Right. So we're we're great. We're lucky. We're sure. Stetson University students. Right. You know, they're sending us our little stipend for food every month. We get to go to museums and whatnot. And here are these these people who are marked for death. Sure. Our age. Well Madge Vasig, who was on this, do you know Madge? He's a he's a local attorney. He's Iranian and he this he he was our second guest on his show. And his father was in that position that mm -hmm. you're talking about, and uh, they had they were exiled because of uh, that. And his father was actually interned because he was interviewed on a local paper, and he had made some mm -hmm. statements that they took out of context and characterized it as anti-government. And he was interned and ultimately was able to be exiled. But um, Madge, who I think went to Stetson to land. He, when George Bush was president, organized a protest of George Bush, and he told me that his father was just out of his mind scared for his son because he thought that his son had potentially done the very same thing that he had done back in Iran and was scared that he was going to receive the same treatment. But in kind of a beautiful turn of events, um, their phones started ringing, 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 and he was so scared that they were going to have to move and all this other stuff. And it was all these people that were calling up to praise what his son said and how, you know, what a beautiful sentiment it was and how true it was and how, you know, what a, what a good young man you've raised and all this other stuff. So it was, it was uh, heartening to, to hear that, you know, sometimes we get things right over here. Right. It was well received. Yeah. 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 So it, anyways, I, I've, 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 I've had the opportunity to kind of hear that story before through, uh, him speaking about his father, but uh, no, I mean, again, travel, it's a privilege and it's one that not everybody gets to do because, you know, it's not always inexpensive to travel. But when I was in law school, my wife and I, uh, we studied abroad in Greece, nice. which was amazing. Uh, we, I got to experience uh, an earthquake with my wife, which I always tell the story of that. Uh, and uh, so that was interesting. And then I was telling you before the show, I had the opportunity to go teach family law in La Havre, France, which is effectively Normandy, right? It's about, it's, it's, it's kind of it's neighboring. It's further north and um, uh, west, sure. pardon me, no, east, east of uh, Normandy. But yeah. we got to see Normandy. Normandy was just amazing because after the war they had to rebuild it. So never have I seen a city which is so uh, uniformly planned. I mean, there's kind of a look to it that's uniform throughout the city because it was pretty much all rebuilt at once whereas in florida you got strip mall pawn yes. shop strip club barbecue da, 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 you know there it's 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 like someone built a city all at once and it was gorgeous but 
I had the opportunity to, to, to teach the family law with another attorney locally, and uh, it was a very interesting experience. And, but we made such beautiful friends. We have uh, the friends, the Diffuse, and uh, uh, the Diffuse, Fred Diffuse and his wife, Isa, they, uh, we just got to see them. We went uh, a month ago, my wife and I went to England and Scotland, yes. and they took the ferry over to England during one of the biggest storms that they've had in like 10 years. Like, I really like I don't it. know if you saw the video of the, the, the ferry boat like crashing into the dock. That wasn't their boat, but it was oh that same goodness. weekend. But what anyways, an ordeal. Yeah, but he's an attorney. And so we got to spend a day with him and go see how they do things. And they do, I don't remember if it was across the board, but they do three, I think, do they call them solicitors or what do they call the judges over there? I think they call them, maybe that's what they call the attorneys. Are you but, talking about in England or in France? France. Uh, I'm trying to remember now. Well, in England, it's barristers. If you're sure. at the court level, uh, uh, it'll come to me in a minute. That's fine. But I they had the, the day that I went, they had three judges hearing trials. So it's I, the same in France. They it? have it, they have a panel of three sure. for family law as well. Sure. I just can't remember. That's what fine. It's called, That's but, fine. But this, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's fascinating, and it and it and I think it it gave me a different view on the practice of law and. Uh, but again, the and travel. The dignity, do you, I mean, you, did you? Oh, it's much better there than it is here, for sure. I would say, yeah. Very it, formal. It's much more, sure. It's it's more of a, uh, I don't know, I don't even know what word adequately describes it. But but here, here it's, it's like. It's a very solemn process. Yes, it's yes, very, that's, that's fine. Very formal. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's very serious. Yes. Not, not to take away from the way we practice law here. Um, but you kind of see a little bit of everything. And I've been a, I mean, I've been attorney over 30 years, Josh, and the bulk of my practice has been in trial work. And I see an erosion, particularly the younger lawyers, where either they're not taught trial etiquette or they don't know how to practice trial etiquette. But I don't want to just pick on the young lawyers because there are some who know exactly what they're doing and others maybe, depending on maybe where they went to school, I don't know. But I think generally speaking, don't want to pick on the younger lawyers. I think what I mean to say is that generally speaking, I see a certain amount of erosion in terms of etiquette, not just vis-a-vis -vis opposing counsel, but also towards the court. And I agree, but this brings me back to kind of one of my bones to pick that I brought up is, is I think it's a two-way street, though, too. I think it's got to come from the court to the attorneys and from the attorneys to the court. I know the court's in a hard position because they're, it's, the case is being laid at their feet to make a decision, and their job isn't to make everybody happy. Their job is to follow the law. Right. So obviously, sometimes you're going to be ruling against people, but in doing so, in exercising that power, getting back to the temperament thing, I think in my experience... I see a higher level of respect with judges who have better temperament than the reverse, you know, and I've, I've talked about it before, but there's a couple judges that I've seen who've run multiple times to get on the bench and they get on the bench and it seems like they hate it. It seems like they don't want to be there. And, and so, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying. It begs the question is, why did you become a judge? For, for sure. But also... You know, I think everybody owes respect to each other. I, I don't disagree with that. Right. You're right. No, it's 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 a two-way street. Um, but but going back to the temperament, though, you 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 touched on that, and I meant to make a comment, and then I forgot. I, I started talking about okay. France, but um, I think most people know when they go to court, whether they're represented by counsel or not. I think they know, Josh, that 
someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. I don't think they go into the courthouse thinking that so much as they th- they they hope right. that they have a fair day in court. And I think that's what most people really focus on. I hope I get treated right. I hope I have a fair day. Win or lose, I hope I feel like I had my day in court. And you see that. I, there's, proce- there's times when I was a prosecutor where, you know, I treated someone respectfully, but they got jail time or they got whatever, and they were fine with me, you know? Uh, so I, I, I definitely understand the phenomenon that you're uh, referring to, but I, going back just a little bit. So how did the seed of law get planted? When, when is it that you kind of made that decision? So that was back in France. I, I used to love arguing and defending my friends in school. And, um, my father back then used to, you know, make fun of me and say, you're, you should become a lawyer one day. Of course, I don't know. I was six or seven years old. I didn't know what it was or what it meant, but it sounded like I got to argue and defend other people. So it made sense to me. So that was the very first time the seed was planted. When I used to think about it, as I learned more about it, I never envisioned it would be in another country. Yeah. I mean, it was something I wanted to do. It was in the back of my head, of course. But when the whole divorce thing happened, we, we were so discombobulated, for want of a better word, each in our own ways. Uh, my two oldest sisters worked really, really hard to support my mom and Francoise and I. That was their job. And, you know, they were 21 and 20. They could have so easily gone on with their own lives and done their own thing. They could have stayed in France. They could have come to America. I know their dream was to go to California and live there because everybody, right. you know. The 70s, sure. Beach tapped. boys, yeah, everything. Sure, yeah. everything happy happens in California. Yeah. But they stuck it out with us, um, supporting us, working really hard, and really showing Francoise and I, you know, the kind of work ethics that it takes and also what it means to be a family. And to this day, thank God, we're still a very tight-knit Sounds like family. an amazing, amazing family, amazing mother, you know, yeah, some mom, very strong, awesome. strong people in your life. So that's, that's great. Strong um, women. Strong women. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, <laughs> strength, yeah, I, you know, the, the sex to me doesn't matter if you're a strong person. That's, that's to be admired. Um, so where'd you go to law school? I know you went to undergrad at Deland. Did you go to Stetson Law? For, yes. Okay. I went to, no, no, okay. sorry, sorry. No, I went to Nova, Nova oh, okay. College of Law now, before it was uh, Southeastern. Right. Uh, I went to Nova in Fort Lauderdale. So I came back from Germany and uh, worked for about a year to start saving for law school and applied to Stetson and Nova, got into both. Uh, but at the time, I still was... Uh, so I became totally fluent in German. Oh, wow. And, so are you trilingual? I was then. Now, yeah, no, okay. not so much. Uh, but um, And I also studied a little bit of Russian while I was oh, wow. in I German. Yeah, it was very hard. Uh, so by the time I got back, I, I felt like I hadn't been around for a long time. And I, I kind of needed my mom around. I knew law school was going to be tough. And I worked for a firm in West Palm Beach at the time. Uh, and one of the... Uh, one of the uh, ladies who worked at the firm was also a student at Nova and she really was a strong advocate and persuaded me to apply there. So eventually I did, I got in, I got into Stetson as well and then decided I would stick around the East Coast just because I could be a little closer to my mom and my sisters. Um, And then I thought, well, if, you know, if it doesn't work out at Nova, I'll transfer back to Stetson. 
But I love Nova. Right. I loved it. And I don't know if you know, it was um, at the time right on the perimeter road that separates the Fort Lauderdale airport from the rest of the oh, town. No, I didn't know that. It was oh, wow. it was very noisy. Yeah. But it, we were in our own little world, notwithstanding the landings and takeoffs. Sure. Uh, but it was great and it was well endowed, extremely good library, amazing professors. And I was just I felt good there. I stayed there and um, eventually graduated from uh, Nova. And so what was the first job after you graduated? Uh, my first job after, well, first, before I get to that, I was a, um, a clerk at a, an insurance defense firm Okay. during, I want to say, my second year in law school. Very good, very good firm, and kind of opened up my eyes to what else is out there. Because right. we're so segregated when you're in law school. We're such baby students in terms of the law. Not only that, but they, what, what, did you take an insurance defense class? No, of did course, you take they didn't a plaintiff's class? Did you t take no. a how to manage your own small business class? Did you take a billable hours class? No, you're learning exactly. ingress and egress and the exactly. rule of perpetuities. And None of this stuff we're ever going to need. stuff that... I, that's a that's right. I, that's a whole other podcast that I could do. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> so applying the practicalities of what we're taught or not taught in right. law school is really is really the challenge. And I, I would have to say a couple of things really helped me. Um, I took an immigration course because I thought that's what I was going to do. I thought it was in my heart to help people who were similarly situated as I, as I was, as my family was. And unfortunately, that didn't work out for me. I also took trial ad at the same time and evidence, and I just fell in love with that, and that was the end of that. Did they um, have trial team, moot court, law review, all that stuff when you were there? Uh, we only had two things. We had law review and moot court, okay. and I was moot court coordinator. Okay. So I was in, in that, um, in that group. Appellate space, yeah. Yes. And after law school, uh, well, I did, we're skipping ahead. So... During my last semester of law school, I did the Supreme Court uh, certified internship, and I th I want to say we were the pilot class. Oh, wow. I'm not 100% sure, so I, I don't want to misquote years or anything. It was a while back, but I thought we were the pilot, and I did my internship at the Palm Beach State Attorney's Office. Okay. And so speaking of practicality, that's really where you learn oh, everything. Sure. And the things... Uh, you separate. You learn to separate the the stuff we learned that we're never going to use in law school, to the stuff we need, like evidence and rules of procedure and all sorts of other little things like talking to a witness. I took a psychology class in law school, which was phenomenal. Psychology, both both in dealing with counsel, judges, clientele, but then also mental health. You know, I think they should teach a mental health for attorneys. I, I, I wish that I had the wherewithal, the funds, the power, whatever, to create a pilot law school that actually was directed at what you have a high probability of running into and seeing how those attorneys perform uh, as opposed to those with more of a traditional, you know, I think it's very due for an overhaul. But, That's a great idea. Yeah. yeah, the curriculum is a little stiff. Um, and then back then, just by way of example, environmental law classes didn't exist, Josh. It was sure. just starting to be a thing, and people were starting to make law in environmental law, 
but there were no courses being taught. So by virtue of the same thing, they were just starting to experiment with psychology classes, at least at Nova. I took one. I'm so glad I did. But it's also negotiating. Oh, yeah. It's getting the yes and all these other things. Body, they, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Body language. You know, learning all these things to be observant in a courtroom, really pick up on the, the, the intangibles. Uh, and, and the communications that people convey, the messages we telegraph to one another oh. without even being conscious of it. And that's really the meat of being, I think, a trial attorney, an effective trial attorney, but in any event. Uh, so my first job, you're not going to believe this, uh, I, I really wanted to stay with the state attorney's office, but I didn't because I was offered a job by Burger King Corporation, don't oh, laugh, wow. <laughs> to work in their corporate, their corporate down in Miami, and to groom me to be an international transactional attorney. And oh, yeah. I thought, I will never have this opportunity to use my languages, my education, and travel, which, of course, I love to do, um, again. But I can always get back to the courtroom. Right. So I did that. How long did you do that for? Um, <coughs> excuse me. Maybe six. Oh, I want to say... I actually cannot remember. 1986, right out of law school. I did this to Joe Redner. I asked him a ton of dates, and he started getting angry at me. He's like, "Stop asking me years. I don't know." Well, I'm still smiling at you, but you know, yeah. doing math. It, it was it was at least two, maybe three years. I'm not sure. In the midst of all of this, I met my husband, Bill Daniel, also an attorney in town, and uh, so we met at Burger King. He was an attorney there already. And then next thing I know, I'm engaged, we get married. It was very, very, very fast. And I know I continued to work there for a while. And I think it was either 89, uh, Bill would know all this, either 88 or 89. So a couple of years, at least two years, maybe three years, I stayed with Burger King. And it was amazing. It wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. I never got to be the international transactional attorney that I have. I, had I have one colleague who works at Checkers and another one who works at Outback or whatever. So I, I don't know that they do exactly what you did, but I, the, the inner workings aren't as glamorous as it might have been perceived, at least for them. Right. I didn't really know what I was getting into, but what I did get out of that, they had amazing training for all of their attorneys in the real estate development. Uh, Division. Oh, I can imagine. And in that department, they taught us franchise law, more stuff we didn't learn in law school, by the way. Uh, franchise law, negotiations, development, real estate, uh, contracts, not just drafting contracts, and this is complex contracts, to say the least, but pulling them apart. Mm -hmm. Those are skills I, I have taken with me and I still use for my... Reading insurance policies. Absolutely. And, and for sure, I, you right. know... And if you know how to write them then you know how to, to read them well you know how to write them read them but you know also how to pull them apart yeah. when you're representing a client who needs to maybe get out of a contract so those are skill sets that i will forever be grateful uh to burger king and and uh, all of my bosses there but so that was my first job and and uh, out of law school anyway and then eventually i went back to litigation so and what did, what did litigation the plaintiff side or did where, what did you do so I found this little firm in Miami called Ludovici and okay. Ludovici. Okay. And Two good Irish names. <laughs> and uh, they were primarily a real estate firm. Okay. But well, got gosh, you had the experience. Eggs. Yeah. 
<laughs> but they they needed an attorney to go to court and try everything because they hated going to court. Right. And so they had Maryland Casualty as a client, and they were doing a little bit of subro work. I'm like, yeah, I can do this. So I became the subro attorney, and and that grew into more. Uh, did a little bit of family law, but you know, wasn't totally enamored with that. But I fell in love. Really. <laughs> But I felt family well. <laughs> but I did do contested adoption litigation. Oh, well, that's a, that's a, a world unto itself. I won't even touch those. That was I send all those to Jeannie horrible. Tate or whoever. You know, yeah, Jeannie yeah. Tate, of course, uh, the the absolute best in the state, right. probably in the country at this point. Yeah. But yeah, those were brutal, and uh, and I started doing more and more insurance work uh, through Maryland Casualty and then other firms, uh, not firms, other carriers that, that sent work. And then eventually, Bill and I moved to uh, Tampa. And you opened up a practice together? Nope. I continued to do Maryland Casualty, okay. wanted me to continue to do their work, so I brought them with me. I had another baby, so first I had my daughter. How many children do you have? I have two. Okay. I have two. And uh, my Boy daughter. Boy and a girl, girl and a girl? Yeah, my baby girl is now a lawyer. Really? In, in Fort Lauderdale. Oh, okay. What type oh, of lawyer? Yeah, uh, she's an insurance defense attorney. Oh, okay. She's with Marshall Dennehy, okay. very good firm. Uh, but her father and I are heartbroken that she's chosen Fort Lauderdale to live well, at. Yeah. You, as, as you know, life takes you all over. Maybe she'll True. circle back Of all life. mothers, I know I, I she appreciate married? that. No, Introduce no. her to a nice Tampa boy. And <laughs> <laughs> she uh, is with, her boyfriend is uh, also a double uh, gator. They, oh, okay. they both went to UF, met in law school. And he is uh, also practicing law in, um, I want to say Fort Lauderdale, Miami. I'm not real sure. Uh, so they're both super bright kids. Well, I can imagine. Very, very, very nice. Um, I'm always wondering what the children of two lawyers turn out like because my wife and I are partners and, you know, we've got a boy and a girl. So I always, I'm very sarcastic with my children and, and my wife says, they're young, they don't get sarcasm. And I say, yeah, but they'll get it before anybody else does. That's true. You sound like my husband, Bill Daniel. So yeah. your wife is right. They yeah. can't tell the difference. But one day they'll use the sarcasm on you and you'll... Well, the other thing, the other story that I tell is I, I go to a therapist and I'm always talking about how concerned I am about what harm I'm doing to my children. And the, the therapist always says, studies show that the mother has a much greater impact on the children than the father does. And so I tell my wife, it doesn't matter what I do. It's, it's all, it's all on your, you know, on your shoulders. I don't know. I, I don't know that I would agree with that. I, Bill's pretty I'm, influential I'm dad. I'm yeah. Yeah. He's pretty influential and he knows it, but uh, our children learn how to negotiate right at the dinner table oh, yeah. every night. That yeah. was one of the things that we always insisted on. And they, they're very good. <laughs> they don't even have to be lawyers. They're very good at it. So um, when did you leave? When did you leave? Was it, Mer did you say Merrill? A Maryland Casualty. Okay, yeah, when did you leave them? Uh, no, they, they, when I moved to Tampa, they, I continued to represent them. Okay. I had my son, so I have a, I have my son, uh, Will Daniel, and uh, he is in uh, commercial real estate as well. Oh, wow. And uh, doing a great job. Went to UF. Uh, he loves what he's doing. Uh, gives him the flexibility that he needs. Um, not everybody, not everybody likes a nine-to-five job in the office, so it's perfect for him. Right. And uh, very bright young man, and um, I, I'm very proud of both of my kids. Um, so I already had Veronica when we moved to Tampa. I think she was two, and then I was pregnant with Will, so continued to work out of the home for a little bit, and then a year later. 
first of all, I was very lucky to stay at home for a whole year with Will and Veronica. That was a gift. I don't know how other moms do it. I My heart goes out to every mom who has to go back to work after six or 12 weeks. It is really hard to do. I got lucky. I got to stay a little bit uh, at home, but then I had this great opportunity working for Prudential Property and Casualty. They needed a litigation attorney, and so I began working with Janice Camp. She was my supervising attorney. I was the associate trial attorney. We had two legal assistants. We were a four-women office, oh, and, that's great. and we covered the, every, I mean, just about every county around here, Hillsborough, Pinellas, Hernando, Pasco, Polk. I went down to also uh, Manatee, Sarasota, all the way down to Venice, and then she went to Orlando. So we had a huge territory, and I did that for seven years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Quite a, quite a breadth of experience. So uh, currently, what, what's your practice? Okay, so we're jumping ahead. Okay. I, after Prudential, I had a, a, another amazing opportunity to work with a, a firm called Gallagher, Howard, and Daniel. And that was a, uh, I'm sorry, it was Gallagher and Howard at okay. first. Oh, and yeah. then it became Gallagher, the Daniel, and, yeah, <laughs> and Keenan eventually. But uh, um, Gallagher, uh, David Gallagher and Michael Howard had a statewide practice litigation again where uh, we defended nursing homes, uh, physicians, nurses, uh, occasionally another professional such as a, an architect or an engineer. We had some construction cases and those were fun, but for the most part it was high-end uh, complex medical issues dealing with either brain injuries or uh, sometimes wrongful death, uh, just really the complex Sure. Yeah, n we do first home. party property. We've done some nursing home. We do plan so. So you know how complicated, get, especially the medical aspect oh, of it. You got you, you almost have to have a medical degree to be an effective litigator on those cases. I mean, uh, you have to have them, and we did. We have phenomenal uh, nursing uh, or nurse paralegals sure. with nursing backgrounds, and they were just amazing. Yeah. And they they would steer steer us in the right direction, and sometimes we. Um, defended our clients because they were undeserving of the lawsuits that were coming at them. And other times, we saw some serious issues uh, and we helped our clients make things better. So it was really a great learning experience, but it was good. And, and at the same time, even though it was complex, I started to see the application of working with physicians and uh, nurses in their business practice to try to keep them out of trouble. Right. And so eventually that's what I have faced in. And so to kind of answer your question in a very roundabout way, that's what I'm doing now. I represent doctors. Okay. And they're, if they're surgeons, their medical surgical practices in their business. For uh, compliance and prevention and all that sort of stuff. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And so if... If I still need to go to court, I will. I certainly defend them in depositions. I think that's absolutely important. I go over licensure, regulations, whatever, the coding, billing, whatever, just to keep them not only just compliant, but also above scrutiny. I have a friend, uh, Scott Bitterly, over in St. Pete, and his father, uh, I 
forget his first name, but literally his last name, but they basically do that, but they do it for engineers. Whenever, you know, they're building, you know, commercial structures, hospitals, all these different things, they go in in advance to make sure the litigation doesn't happen down the road. Exactly. So, exactly. so I definitely understand. So the decision for judge, when did, when did that pop up? The very first time. This is your first time running, correct? Correct. Okay. I have put in my name many times uh, for uh, appointment. an appointment sure. by the governor, but um, unfortunately, I, I don't know if it's 9, 10, or 11. It's somewhere in that number. Uh, my friend Nat Kidder over in Pinellas County has been on that list a bunch of times, too. Yeah, it's very difficult. Yeah. And I always thought, well, if I have to run, I'll run, but I won't run when it's a presidential election year, and here we are. Uh, but I think the very first time I was filled with that sense of anything is possible, Helene, was when I got sworn in as a, as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I had finally achieved my dream of becoming a lawyer. I just really honestly never thought it would happen. I worked very hard, for sure. Uh, but you still don't ever think you're going to get there. Right. And then I got there, and it was just phenomenal to me. So and what I've else had, can I do? Yeah. Yes, that's exactly it. And I got sworn in by uh, one of my professors who had just been appointed to the 4th DCA, oh, Judge, wow. Judge Barry Stone. I asked him for the privilege of being sworn in by him. Uh, and he said yes. And my mom was there. I got sworn in. And for the first time, I had this genuine feeling or belief, I think, belief that I could do be anything, anything right. do anything, and be a judge. And so that was the beginning. And over the years, of course, you know, I've been in court many times. I've had many trials. I've been a mediator since 2001, which I have to say is one of my favorite things in the world. Well, uh, getting back to psychology and yes. how that might, I mean, wow, that, that, I think that, you know, it's funny as, as a family law attorney, we kind of have these backroom discussions about which mediators we want to use, which ones we don't want to use, what type of mediator is right for this case, what type of mediator is right for that case. And there really is so much about the presentation more than the, the, the subject matter. You know, you can, you know, my, my uh, wife worked at Solomon Trop for a little bit. She worked under Robert Trop. Do, do you know that firm? Or I know Sandy the firm. Okay. So Robert Trop, he doesn't practice anymore, but uh, she worked with Matt Thatcher under Robert Trop, and he just... He could sell anything to anybody, and I don't mean in a sleazy or a slimy way. He just—it's the presentation. Oh yeah, and it, it's funny because my wife always used to tell me that uh, pe people would come in to hire him, and he'd sit there and he'd talk to him and he'd listen to him and identify him and talk to him sports and all this other stuff. And at the end of the consult, he'd say, "I'll, I'll be right back." And he'd come in and he said, "Here's a list of some attorneys I think you you should probably talk to. I, I'm not sure that you can afford our firm, but here you know here's some here's some people that might be better at and." Guess what they immediately did? Pulled out their pocketbook. <laughs> You're the one I want. Right. I mean, yeah. he's, he's, he's showing value by, you know, the, so there's just so much of that, like you mentioned, but you, you know, you mentioned mediation and I've actually just come off of about three mediations with three mediators and three very different experiences. And so. And different styles. Right. And, right. Like, and you're right, depending on your client, opposing counsel, what it is you're trying to accomplish, because it's not always necessarily a settlement. I mean, yes, ideally, that's the ultimate goal. 
I mean, sometimes, sometimes it's educational. It's getting exactly. them to understand what's it's at getting play, your client what, to a point what where their exposure is exactly. Yeah, and so no, you I need agree. that right mediator, and, and we all have different styles. And I can't tell you how many times I've had PI attorneys reach out to me and say. I have a very difficult female client. I need a woman mediator. 100%. Family to, law too. Yes, yes. To be um, in that room because they, there are too many men and they feel overwhelmed by that. And I totally understand that. So we, we balance out the room sometimes for no other reason by virtue of gender. Uh, but yeah, depending on what the agenda is, you got to pick your mediator very carefully and and yes the psychology goes right into it and for the sex, sure the sex thing it matters too so we have four attorneys at this firm i'm the only male uh and you know love it yeah well uh well I, you know i always tell them i was like any marketing materials i'll stay off of you guys do it well and for one thing i, I had i had this conversation a lot you look in the pi space how many all-female firms i'm not saying there aren't any but how many do you know of there are a handful. There's a handful, but yeah. you don't see billboards. For, I mean, Francine Hay or, uh, is, Fran pro Hosh, Fran yeah. Hosh is probably the only one that I could think of. That's true. But it's all Culpepper, Curlin, Morgan & Morgan, uh, Abramson & Utterwick. Uh, well, we uh, have Ultima, of course. Ultima, Morgan, and, and Emma, the German Shepherd. Sure. Yes. Yes. But but my, my point is, is I think there's a space in the PI world for that that's not being capitalized upon. And I think there's a lot of situations like the one you're talking about where... You know, you are, you have the adjuster, you have the attorney, you have the structured settlement guy, you've got the mediator, right. and you're a woman in there, and it's just, you know, whether you're a alpha or not an alpha or whatever else, I, I, I just have to imagine that matters a lot to, you know, female litigants, female clients, and so part I, aside from just the psychology. Yeah, I do know of one. I, I Tatiana Buhoff is... Oh, sure. Yeah, she's no, doing I'm, a great job, but you're right. There are amazing, amazing you're, attorneys, no, you're, but... You're right, they're not a whole lot of them. them. Exactly. They're That's, not in the... And in there's their... certainly enough market share to fill that void because sure. there is a need. And I can totally see where a woman will want to be represented by a woman. I totally get that. Well, Same I, thing in a, in, in a family law context or PI context. I totally get that. Well, so I used to do, I used to partner with Brian Camarino. I did all of his personal injury work for him. And Eddie Reyes, who subleases the other half of this office, I see the Latino client flow that's coming in and out of there. And there's such a loyalty there. Uh, my friend Damian McKinney, who was on the show last week, he's a gay attorney and he has a lot of that that uh, area feels more comfortable with him, and we're getting, you know, with the changes of the laws, we're getting a lot more of that type of work. And so there's a, you know, there's a shorthand there where you don't have to explain as much. And so whatever the situation is there, I try to be everything to everyone, but sometimes you just can't be. You yeah, can't you be can't. everything. To None everyone. of us can be. So yeah. you know, I, I do think that that's important. Well, I think it's nice that you try, but you can't. Well. Yeah, I, I think we should try and understand that we can. If we can do both things at the same time, that's probably walking and chewing gum is hard to do, but we, we try. Um, so anyways, how have you found the campaign to be? Has it been more than you thought it would be? Has it been different than you thought it would be? How, how is it, how is it so working for you? That's a great question. When I was first starting to reach out to friends and mentors to find out whether this was the right time for me, Everyone told me it was going to be really hard, but never explained to me what that meant. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it, 
is really hard, Josh. It's really hard, and I don't even know how to qualify that statement, but it is, it is physically and emotionally demanding. It's very taxing. And uh, if and when you should ever decide to run for judge, Josh, just in case. I do not have the temperament. I, I, I have have the, <laughs> I'm Irish, and I have an Irish temper, and that, <laughs> that wouldn't work well. Uh, well, let me just say it has to be a family decision. Right. And I, I was... Notwithstanding my desire and, and my, my wanting to be a judge for a long time, and, and, and it's always been in the back of my mind. In fact, I feel it every time I walk into a courtroom, honestly. Every time I walk into a courtroom, it's like, why am I not a judge yet? Okay, so my kids know I've been wanting to be a judge forever. Of course, my husband knows. And so when I finally started to circle back to this, now my children are grown. You know, we've we've gotten through all of that. Uh, my husband and I are finally in a place where we can start refocusing on each other, being empty nesters and all that. So the conversation comes up, and I, I you know, I said we really got to make this a family decision because it's going to affect everybody in different ways. Right. But for sure, it's going to affect your, everyone. Your, both your girls, or your girl and your son, are out of the house. You said. Yeah. Okay. Yes, but but it's still oh, invasive. It's a family, it's a family sure. thing, and I really needed everybody to be on board. So when I asked my my daughter, I said, "Give me, you know, one good reason why I should do this because I'm not sure. As much as I want to be a judge, I'm just not sure because mm -hmm. this is a huge decision." And she said, "Mommy, you have to show me the way." Yeah. Yeah. So. So what do Thanks you say after that? Yeah. yeah, I'm like, <laughs> now it, dang it. Now it's happening. Did you have to say right. that? So, and she's right. We have to show our children the way. I, God bless you for saying that. I don't think I have, I, I've always considered myself a moral and ethical person, flawed, but moral and ethical. I was an only child and my parents' view, they just both passed away within the past two years, but their view of me was my North Star. But in their absence, my children's view of me has been my moral compass and you know I always have this conversation in my family law cases is like as much as you dislike this person who's on the other side and whatever it is negative that you have to say they are half of your child that is your child's mother or that is your child's father and how you're treating that person is going to resonate with your child and not only in their view of that person but how to treat people and so you know, I, as much as I can, always, whether it's my relationship with my wife or how I treat other people or whatever the thing may be, you know, their eyes are always on you, even if their eyes physically are on you. And what they pick up on, you know, because I know as an only child, what I picked up on in that household shaped me so much today. So I, I hear you, you know, I, I, I can feel the shiver down my spine if my daughter said something like that to me. So it's clear that you you had no choice in the matter at that point. Right. So to be clear, Veronica, <laughs> um, <laughs> she's to blame. No. Right. It's all your fault. <laughs> uh, it's all your fault, but I love you, honey. Um, so so yes, it, it's been a family decision. Uh, my boys contribute. My boys, being Bill and Will, contribute in their own unique way. Uh, they recently attended the Rotary Club stag dinner, oh, wow. the all meat thing, yeah, and it was a huge, huge dinner. Yes. Yeah, so so they're doing their part in things that you know they can handle. Um, I'm, I'm doing all the things that I can handle. Uh, but to answer your question, it, it's as hard as it has been, I am really trying to enjoy the journey. 
And it's been an amazing journey. I have no way. Yes. I have no way to predict or even control what 200,000 people may or may not do in August. There's no way. And this county is so big. It's so big. I can't. I started a year ago campaigning in March, late March of uh, 2019. And I've been campaigning very hard. And if you follow me in social media, you'll see I'm in two, three, four, sometimes five events a day. Um, I still can't even touch but a fraction of all of the people who live in Hillsborough County. Well, it's that being everything to everyone and knowing that you can't be. It's kind of, that applies to that, you know, that thing. Well, before we wrap up today, is there anything else you'd like to tell to the voters about yourself or why you think you're the uh, pick for the spot? Well, thank you. I I think I'm the pick for the spot. Um, I I think I have the trial experience. And I think what most voters don't realize, if they're non-lawyers, is that we're essentially applying for the position of trial judge. And I think it takes a trial attorney to be a trial judge. And so I want to put that out there. And I also want to send out the message that it's absolutely important to vote in the primaries. That's when all the local uh, judicial races are decided. And a lot of people think it's going to be in November, but it's actually in August, August 18. So please vote um, in August. And uh, yeah, look us up. Uh, look where us where up. can they find you? Where okay. can they, so what are your websites, your social media, your law firm website, all that stuff? It's all Helene Daniel for judge.com or or some version of that helene daniel for judge on facebook and twitter insta all that stuff what's the firm website my my law firm is daniel law group okay great well thank you so much for coming by it was a pleasure talking to you thank Uh, you josh sometime you can come back and we can talk about france oh i would uh, love to that would be great and see how everything goes this year but wish you the best of luck it was a pleasure thank you for coming by thank you it was a pleasure likewise thank you so much all right (laughs) 